Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Emily Long, and I will be your host for this episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Deidre Black about archaeology and disaster recovery. Please note that any comments, opinions, or observations are her own and not representative of any federal agency. Filling out the panel today are Kirsten Lopez and Chelsea Slotten. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. Glad to be here. It's great to be here. Well, we are excited to talk about federal disaster recovery and archaeology and what that all entails. So, Deidre, before we get into that, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? You've been on the podcast before, but it's been a while. It sure has. Um, Well, I've been an archaeologist professionally for over 20 years. The first 15 years or so of my professional archaeology career was in cultural resource management in the United States. This is largely field archaeology under state and federal laws, uh, most often the National Historic Preservation Act, in that I've worked in over a dozen states. I've been a principal investigator in half a dozen states and just generally had a lot of just overall rounded experience on what archaeology looks like in different states and parts of the country, um, how the different state agencies approach their historic recovery and recording items. And I've also, in that time, uh, gotten my, I got my master's degree in 2007 with a focus in geoarchaeology or, you know, soils and public archaeology, so cultural resource management. And around 2015, I started working specifically in uh, federal level disaster recovery. Uh, Before that, I had certainly done some field work in areas that had had disasters. So you have to work around, work your investigations around uh, areas that had been flooded or Mm -hmm. had had tornadoes or had had fires. Um, But this was my transition into approaching it directly about recovery. Hmm. So Hmm. fewer shovel tests and now more focusing on gaining as much information as possible from what's left after the disaster. Right. So we see, you know, what's, what's left, what's the likelihood that there's still archeological information that is substantive or you know eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of desktop assessments. And so a desktop assessment would be like G- looking at GIS and maps and whatnot. Oh, so many maps. And so it's a good maps. thing. I, <laughs> so I love maps. maps and I love GIS. And I like doing statistical analysis, so I have, I have found my calling. Uh, if an area is slated for recovery and there's going to be ground disturbance, as in, you know, dirt is going to move that hasn't recently been moved before uh, to any depth. Mm-hmm. We'd look at, you know, what are the sediments and soils in that area? Um, as this is North America, we're lo- largely looking for, are they Holocene soils? You know, are they soils less than 10,000 years old? And we'll look at known archaeological site distribution. You know, are we near water? Are we away from water? In a flood So I have a interesting, potentially very random question. <laughs> I was watching a journalist, um, video journalism, YouTube thing the other day about the invention of um, nuclear warheads and kind of how nuclear testing gave us the bikini and Godzilla and all sorts of other cultural things. It's very interesting. I can link to it if anyone cares. <laughs> um, but when you're, when you're looking at soil sediments, obviously like the first atom bomb that was dropped was dropped in the American um, Southwest and they like didn't really know what they were expecting so like is that a thing that you have to be wary of as well I'm very curious 
And so uh, part of my current job is not only to look at the, the archaeology, the historic buildings, but I also look at uh, potential contaminations, endangered species, uh, clean water, clean air, and all those sort of items. And we give a reasonable best effort. It's our our legal language, you know, un under a reasonable best effort, we have looked and seen, is there the potential for contaminations in this area? That's always a good thing. I've, <laughs> I've definitely been on some federal projects where it's like, oh yeah, we're going to go check out this historic uranium mine. It's like, do we need to be worried about this? <laughs> uh, well, well, certainly in my past, I've, I've had to encounter contaminants as as a field archaeologist uh, i did you know shovel test surveys in mississippi cotton fields and mm. before that i had worked in a lot of like maybe some cow fields and as you're digging deep you might touch something to your tongue to get a little bit better idea of the <laughs> soil texture <laughs> but when the soil has a literal inch thick crust of interesting colors this is not perhaps our best idea and similarly uh, throughout the the midwest and the appalachians and the wachita's uh, the wachita mountains are a, a lateral foothill of the appalachian mountains they go from oklahoma through arkansas up into the rest uh, we come across historic cattle dipping vats and sheep dipping vats oh yeah so what they would do what is cattle dipping it yeah. is a big hole that you dig next to a stream and you fill it historically with something arsenic laden oh great and it's sloped so that the cattle or the sheep can walk in up to their shoulders and walk out and it kills fleas and ticks and all kinds of things. Yeah, uh, it was really common and you would put it next to the stream so that the next time that stream flooded, it would clean out the trough. Oh. So in you areas- some delicious arsenic in there. They're so much arsenic. water. <laughs> arsenic, sometimes there's some lead in there. Mm, uh, so when we were doing, when I was doing field investigations in those areas, if there was the potential for cattle dipping vats, we would cordon off a zone where it was surface investigations only, no shovel testing. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but then, I imagine that stuff would get airborne too if you're screening right. it. Exactly. Eesh. And then I've, I have worked and was a manager on an excavation for a historic oil boom town. Mm -hmm. including all the uh, old derricks, old rigs, and every, everything else. And so we had to come up with a health and safety plan of what you can and can't do while digging. Uh, we had to have a little safety zone where you would wash your hands before you go get your drink of water. Uh, hmm. We would go off-site to eat lunch. And there was, mm -hmm. and so that was just for the oil and sulfur contaminants um, wow and then there was one area of that particular site that also the the drilling had brought up uh, natural radioactive materials yes. <laughs> naturally so occurring radioactive materials because they were it all was, glowing <laughs> it was luckily a low level radioactive sort of like a, a some of the more stable uranium and mm -hmm. so you could go and look at it and you, you can't have anything to, to eat or drink and we had to wear little booties so that it would be easier to clean the mud off but mm -hmm. as long as the mud didn't dry and become airborne it was considered safe by the site manager enough <laughs> Do you have to um, ventilators? And that particular one, no. Mm -hmm. um, there's been other times I've 
worked in active oil fields and we had to wear monitors. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm out in my big orange oil field jumpsuit with my shovel and, and screen, which is a look. <laughs> and wearing my little monitor because, uh, as you know, you know, carbon monoxide and many other fun things that come out of the ground, uh, especially like natural gas, along with the oil, doesn't really have much of a smell to it itself when it comes into your mm -hmm. house to use it. It's scented. And so we had to wear these little monitors. Oh, my God. To make sure that there was still enough oxygen to breathe. But all that was before disaster recovery. Well, and I can yeah, imagine. Yeah, sorry. I, I took us to a left field there with my <laughs> random question about nuclear fallout. Um, but you but, know, that brings up a good point, though, because I bet in disaster recovery, you're going to have even more potentially hazardous stuff with like sewer lines breaking mm -hmm. and just. I just imagine there's a lot of poo there in is. disaster situations. Um, and so you don't just have gray water, you have black water. And then uh, contaminated water actually has levels. Like it's black water level, you know, one, two, three, four, about, you know, what it might have in it. And consider that a lot of, for example, the Gulf Coast has a lot of oil refineries, paper mills, um, a lot of current American chemical industry is within 100 miles of the Gulf Coast in particular. Wow. Um, and so while I am no longer doing that field work, someone is. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so one of the things we do try and identify are uh, pot uh, potential for contaminations. Um, can this debris that's been gathered up, you know, feet and feet of people's lives that were left out in the streets, after it's been sorted through, can it go to a regular landfill or does it have to go to a landfill that is licensed to take a, a contaminated debris? Uh, you know, you have old houses that will have asbestos in the popcorn ceiling. Mm -hmm. You have lead paint mm. and all kinds of interesting historic human contaminants. Yeah. So, so it's certainly and humans it. are good at contaminating things. <laughs> we, we like we our are. chemicals. Are. We do. Uh, Is it living better through chemistry? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Dupont did start uh, down on the Texas coast. <laughs> there you like, go. Can I can I say company names? Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Why not? Yeah. Du DuPont's eaten their own shit for a long time. So, you know. I... Well, their motto, was it theirs, the motto that was better living through chemistry? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Better living through chemistry. And I do know in the 1950s, they had their uh, chemical technicians. So not the, the head chemist, but the sort of associate's degree chemist working under them would do things like stir benzene by hand without masks oh. on. Oh, geez. Hmm. All kinds of interesting things. Um, other types of contaminants, uh, for example, along the Houston Shipping Channel, which is just a channelized bayou, mm -hmm. there are things like a, a Civil War weapons ordinance, like O-R-D-A-N-C-E. Oh, yeah. um, it has yeah. a bunch of big concrete... Mm, caps over it huh. but it is right on the bayou on the channel oh, wow. and there's at least two ordinates on that depot depot that are unaccounted for including a <laughs> world war one era mustard gas bomb oh, oh. is that like a relatively <sighs> common issue for um in disaster recovery in general um in in some areas to have like civil war ordinances that could be an issue when with the recovery process, or is that not particularly common? And uh, the, and the disaster recovery that I've worked on thus far in the United States, not particularly common because we do know the general vicinity that most of those ordinances were 
left. Mm-hmm. Misplaced. <laughs> Cashed. Decommissioned. <laughs> yeah, de- decommissioned, I think, is a, a good word um, that you uh, have used there, Deidre. Because, like, in Oregon, there's a number of... Um, sites that had previously been used for training or were Mm -hmm. military camps that are no longer a thing. Um, A few years ago, I want to say like five or 10 years ago, there's an area that I grew up in that had previously been a military camp, um, Camp White in uh, Southern Oregon. It was a World War II um, training ground and there was unexploded ordnance all over the place. of course, I don't find this out until I'm a bit older. Um, when they went to put in uh, s- subdivisions, they had to have someone go out there and find it all uh, <laughs> before they could build anything or have the construction workers do anything with it. I mean, there were still like um, little concrete bunkers and stuff all over the place when I was a kid, and we'd just play in and around them not really knowing how dangerous it really was. Um, So that's, you know, out here where there's a lot less military activity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can only imagine in places around the Gulf Coast that um, it's just... (laughs) There's a lot of ports. There's a lot of military things over there. Yeah, a lot of forts, a lot longer period of time that ordnance has been just lying around or used or whatnot. Right. Well, and it was just two weeks ago, uh, workers doing routine uh, storm sewer work under a road in Houston found a Civil War era cannonball with the <laughs> uh, fuse still intact. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, that happens. And areas that That's are, good. you know, the military <laughs> nationwide, some of their uh, areas used for training grounds or previously used for training grounds are areas that you're not going to build houses because they're, say, prone to flooding. Mm-hmm. And... If there's nothing to recover there, that's fine. But if the flooding's bad enough that some of that gets washed downstream. Yeah. Things, things do happen. Oh, uh, but fortunately, so far in my my work since 2015 in disaster recovery, to my knowledge, none of the work I've worked on has had an issue with any sort of unexploded ordinance or yeah, anything bomb. That's good. Just yeah. radioactive materials and poo. Well, so, yeah, much, also... so much poo. <laughs> there are so many things that like you don't think you would ever need to know. And I remember a story from one of my um, old colleagues. I granted this was, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. But had been visited somewhere on the the eastern seaboard and met a local who was talking about finding this really weird shaped thing on the beach and he picked it up and he brought it home oh no and he was cleaning it because you know he wanted to know what it was this guy you know got chatting for whatever my old colleague was like oh well like i'm an archaeologist and i do like some like naval you know maritime stuff like maybe i can tell you what it is the guy's like yeah come on over to my porch it's just been sitting out on the porch getting cleaned great you know, it gets rained on it whatever not worried about it <laughs> they go over to this guy's house and he has an unexploded um world war ii era you know like coastal defense the things that they anchored to the bottom of the oh, ocean oh the God. mines landmines or sea yes. mines i guess yeah okay. Um, oh and my you know, my old colleague just like freaked out and was like, uh, yeah, we need to call bomb dispersal. What do you mean you've been scrubbing at it? What have you been scrubbing at it with? Which is a more common story than you'd think. So if you don't yeah. know what it is, don't touch it. Don't be like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to take it home. Don't use no. it. Don't use it to crack nuts. <laughs> that was a no. recent story out of 
eastern China. Oh no! A farmer had found a, a this nice, heavy, rusty bit of metal and been using it for a decade to crack nuts. Mm-hmm. It was a a grenade. Oh my god! Oh shit! <laughs> it was sturdy. <laughs> well, on that Sleep. note, it's this is a good. We'll public end on information announcement. <laughs> right. Don't yeah, pick public up service announcement. <laughs> when in doubt, leave it in place because it might explode. Yes. <laughs> well, Especially we're at the metal. end of our first segment. And when we come back, we'll definitely discuss more about disaster recovery, the process, and who knows, maybe more about unexploded ordinances. Good times, everybody. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back. We're here with Deidre Black, who's talking with us about archaeology and what you do with disaster recovery and the disaster recovery process. And uh, wondering, so let's say you have a massive hurricane and uh, the floodwaters are finally leaving the area and you're called in. What do you do? In the first section, we certainly talked about, you know, some of the potential hazards. Oh, yeah. Lots of poo, lots of radioactive material. Uh, Lots of debris, which Mm. is just the technical term for everything fell down and made a pile. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing thing that happens is, you know, emergency work. Uh, Keep that building from falling down. Pull those people out. Uh, Make sure people have you know, food and a toilet and somewhere to sleep. Right. Yeah, All people, that. Oh yeah. Yeah. People first. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, as an archeologist, we're sort of on standby as we're waiting for officials, uh, whether, you know, state, tribal, territorial, and federal to make declarations. So you can have, you know, your local, level declaration which is you know the mayor of the county is like okay we have a disaster here we're going to put some disaster services in Um, as the dollar amounts go up and it is all what level you're at really is defined by dollar amount for recovery Mm -hmm. and people with much higher pay grades than i uh, put that math together Uh, so then you might have a state, territorial, or tribal level declaration. So, you know, state services are activated or, or territorial or tribal. And then when it reaches a thir- certain threshold that the state, territory, or, t- or tribe cannot handle it themselves, then you get the federal disaster declaration. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a whole process. Um, and this, this, this next section's very U.S. centric uh, because those are the laws that I'm familiar with. Mm, fair enough. And so you have, if it's a state, uh, you have your mayor, uh, your governor, but also tribal leaders and territory governors uh, can also request a federal declaration. Um, and when that happens, you know, lots of things start happening at once. A bunch of people move in. And keeping in mind that this is specifically for recovery. The disaster has happened. You know, your initial response has happened. Now, how do Mm. we recover? How do we put the pieces back? How do we put people's lives back together? Mm -hmm. And it is always people first. Oh, Living people first. And so as an archaeologist, you're coming in and say your big hurricane has just happened. Um, you may be put on teams to go out and record damage. And boy, are we good at recording things. <laughs> uh, when I first Archaeologists started... Archaeologists love their paper. <laughs> we do. 
<laughs> um, when I first started in, I was like, okay, is, you know, is it going to be a shovel? Um, you know what, you know, what are we doing? They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We get out of the car with a camera. It's like, oh, <laughs> and, and maybe a clipboard. Okay, no, this is easy. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, and definitely I can tell who's been a field archaeologist before because they take, because everyone's given a digital camera and we're just like, all the pictures from every angle. Here's the wide shot. Here's the close shot. Yeah. Every um, cardinal direction. <laughs> um, here's what the neighboring property looks like. Here's what the building across the street looks like. Uh, <laughs> very often, uh, the folks that write the projects, it's not uncommon if there's been an archaeologist on the historic preservation team that's done the field visit. They're like, can we have some of your pictures? Like, yes. Um, a couple of years a- a- after I joined in, they gave uh, everyone is on 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 a disasters issued an iPhone, so it's even easier. It's like bloop bloop bloop. Don't even have to figure out how to download and organize these. Here's pictures. Do, do, do. You know, so that's the nice. first part. Is like, okay, so what happened? Okay, we've recorded mm-hmm. it. Now what? Um, then we will start to have the conversations with the uh, historic preservation officers. So if we're in a state or, or territory, you have you know your state historic preservation officer that is mandatory under the National Historic Preservation Act. And uh, the tribal nations will, some have a tribal historic preservation officer and some have someone in a similar role but called something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are their concerns? You know, mm-hmm. they're local. They know where the sketchy sites are. They know areas of concern. So we're like, okay, you know, this city flooded. Well, we got to watch out for, you know, what we got to pay extra attention to because you have limited personnel coming in and you got to try and do your best to put, you know, the person with this knowledge on looking for for these data Mm -hmm. you know is this a disaster that mostly washed out roads or is this a disaster that washed away buildings you know you're gonna have two different specialists that you're gonna want there do you usually have then like um a historic landscape architect than a historic architect and it's like so are there typically like a lot of people with uh various specialties or are you kind of like um one-stop shop like I can do all of that type of thing um so we have your subject matter experts Ooh, Ooh. so in general you your disaster recovery is going to have some just historic preservation personnel and this is going to cover your generalists your archaeologists your buildings folks um, and then within that you will also have Archaeologist, historic, archaeologist, prehistoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go into the building side, which is architectural history, historic architecture, architecture, and also history. Mm-hmm. And you can hope to have one of everything, but if you can have even one, you're like, yes, specialist, <laughs> you go look at these things. Um, as a long-term field tech, I, by nature, had to be a very generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've picked up a lot of buildings knowledge because very often I'd be on a project that would, where the architectural historian would be like, uh, no, I'm not <laughs> going there. That's gross. <laughs> You're like, well, it's um, gross everywhere. We gotta, gotta do what we like, gotta do. Well, there's dirt, right? We have everyone prepared. We're like, okay, what are we going to do? So at that point, for a federal declaration, we're waiting for a federal nexus. Uh, A lot of folks, if you've done cultural resource work in the United States, most of your investigations, be they surveys or excavations, uh, fall under either Section 106 or Section 110 of the 
National Historic Preservation Act. Uh, for those unfamiliar with those, Section 110 is sort of a general, uh, you know, this is a land or area controlled by a federal, you know, entity, and we're doing sort of a inventory mm -hmm. is the best way to sort of like, uh, 110 has some other weird little like bits, like if something's already been destroyed, what do you do? Oh, yeah. Well, and I think a big um, part, part of it, too, is, like, as soon as you're receiving federal funding, all the ologists start coming in. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so then Section 106 is for a specific undertaking. It describes undertaking. Basically, you are, if you are not a federal entity, you are getting federal money to do a thing, do a project. Yeah. We are building a house we are putting a road up we are digging a big hole next to the school to put dirt on the land to put the school on top of so between the big hole and the dirt the school's not going to get flooded again gotcha. mm -hmm. um, and so that's our undertaking so a lot of where archaeology comes in is in under section 106 and boy do i now know all the ins and outs and little tiny weird details of section 106. <laughs> like I thought I did. I thought I did as a principal investigator. Um, yeah. If you're having yeah. trouble sleeping, read 30, what is it like? 36 CFR 800 subsection <laughs> of section <Yeah>. 106. <laughs> Chelsea, did you have something you wanted to yeah, so about? So one question I had, because mm -hmm. you know, Emily mentioned, um, all of the ologists coming in as soon as there is federal money mm -hmm. available, which which is true enough. But if you've ever, you know, lived through the aftermath of a a natural disaster, or even if you've just seen, you know, photos um, on the news, the after effects of a hurricane, a flood, a tornado, earthquake, what have you. Are pretty or can be pretty devastating to mm -hmm. the local infrastructure so all of a sudden you have all of these people who show up who have work that they need to do but the facilities that they might usually use to do them may not be available so how do you cope with that as an archaeologist uh well so first of all uh for section 106 we know that the emergency actions are exempt you know, that's part of that people first. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. this person is is here, they're breathing. Uh, and they get, priority. they get priority. And for a federal declaration, part of the declaration is the time frame that is mm -hmm. that emergency actions can take place in and be exempt. Yeah. So, There's all kinds you know, of exemptions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I've I've noticed with federal disasters where it's like you only have to do the cultural resources after x y and z happens because mm -hmm. as deidre said people always come save first. the people first exactly. give them save the people find them a roof find oh, them yeah. a bed i mean we love cultural resources but, but we need the people to make them <laughs> there is a limit there exactly. is a limit right so you're sitting there you're living in the disaster area uh, first, know that everyone that is employed to respond to disasters, like for the recovery section, yes, your specialty may be archaeology, but part of having that employment is knowing that you can be repurposed temporarily for something else. So mm -hmm. while currently my primary duties involve okay we're looking at public works we're looking at roads and buildings that the public uses that um, that are being fixed or replaced or anything like that they're being moved entirely um, I also may be manning phones mm-hmm so that people can register for assistance. So you kind of like do that. what's needed in the moment. 
Right. And then it's it's upper management's decision, you know, where do we put people? Yeah. Do you have a favorite area type of thing to be put on where you're like, oh, I would love to check out this kind of area? Like, are you given some flexibility or is there like, oh, I hope they send me to the historic district? <laughs> oh, yes and no. It depends on how widespread a disaster is, how many people are working on the recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love maps and dirt, fun. so I'm just like, okay, where are we at now? Ooh, let's find maps and dirt, maps and dirt, maps and dirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you been able to do more fun technology stuff than with maps with template or not templates, um, uh, like iPads and uh, whatnot, being able to do more like with Collector or Trimbles, that kind of thing? Uh, yes. So for, we have, I have used the collector app. It was a trial for one of the disasters I worked on starting in 2017 and we're given this iPad and it's linked up via cell connection and you're going out and you're recording. As I said at the beginning, the first part it, after a disaster, if the historic is coming in, it's recording the damage. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so then uh, the collector then gets your GPS coordinates, your lat longs, and your it geo-references all the photographs, and then it uploads them. So I have been able to use that. Um, I have found that much like Trimbles, folks that work in cities on coasts are not aware of how they behave under trees in rural areas <laughs> but it worked great in testing because like you did not go to a swamp <laughs> they worked great just outside this building in a parking lot with no right. vegetation or <laughs> and 500 satellites always directly above our head exactly yeah oh uh, but just like uh, so all the work trying to get trembles to work mm-hmm prepared me for this so I was like we're like okay so we will we will sit here and log this one point everything else will be taken offline and we'll upload it later oh yeah I can imagine that being frustrating especially if um I'm, if the grid's down it's not like you you have easy access to data or other other means of recording things if like an entire area is just out and so you're like, well, most learn of your, your paper maps, people. Learn your paper maps. Learn how to use your your digital camera. Learn how to use a compass. Mm -hmm. Because All you know, cell towers get knocked down. Yeah, yeah. It's good non digital skills. Yeah. <laughs> always, always handy when always handy. you're <laughs> working in disaster area or just really the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah. Like, um, Deidre, how did you figure out how to do that? I'm like, well, I had this really cheap boss at one of my jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and we still had to make it work. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've definitely just, I mean, if the disaster type of thing, I was on a wildfire where they didn't have enough garments. And so they just handed out a whole bunch of paper maps and said, figure it out. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so it's yeah. like, all right, let's start driving. And I've got a compass. I think north is that way. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. uh for for other technology uh while i did get to use gis and georeferencing mm -hmm. uh historic maps in in crm i've done a lot more because again it's what can you do without putting shovel to dirt mm -hmm. yeah um, and so a lot of that is pulling up the maps and, and referencing them and going, what is the probability of an archaeological site that is eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places mm -hmm. being where we're fixing to dig a hole? Yeah. I can and imagine, then, so, too, it must be hard figuring out what was there at one point, too. Mm -hmm. Or it the is. possibility of things being there, even if it it's like right. there's no record of anything. However, we happen to be near all of this other historic stuff. Like, mm -hmm. 
what's what's our potential like well 10 blocks to this side is the warehouse district and 10 blocks to the other side is the heights what's in the middle that's not currently (laughs) listed like oh surprise it's where they unloaded the things got it Mm -hmm. Uh, or there used to be an entire train station under these four blocks Surprise! that that when the city was converted uh, from public yeah. transportation to to cars they just mm-hmm. like spooked it away uh, so a lot just, of finding oh, maps oh yeah <laughs> i'm sure just maps are so important in this because i can imagine like a disaster or something in like new orleans you have really well-known historic districts and then thank god mm-hmm. for already recorded areas to know like well what is the actual damage to these areas so right i'm sure and, it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. and over the past 30 years we've had a lot of really good satellite photography oh yeah mm. Um, and so for disasters that have happened since then, we're like, well, we can see what was there before and after your disaster. And then you can use that as your starting point to figure out what used to be there. Um, or in some places, there was uh, an area that I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the probability of something being here? And it was on the side of a river. Coastal plain, and so we're already going. Uh oh, <laughs> you know, river, Holocene soil. We're like, oh, yeah. this is no good. And then we look at the site distribution, and we're like, oh, well, up and down this river, we have intact plantation elements. Oh wow. Uh oh. So you'll have like, your work oh, cut out for you. <laughs> one of these plantations. Uh, in in 1865 was transitioned to a prison plantation and is still one. Uh-oh. Oh wow! Ooh, like, oh, what's that place marker on, on this map? The hanging tree. Oh, oh my god! god. <laughs> oh, oh lord! We're like, okay, let's do some research. Let's do some research. Getting some mid-century research. We're like, oh look, so conservation came in. Just some maps. Oh, the river used to be a mile that way, just on this one property. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, and so it's like you pretty much just wiped out an area. It's like it's all good, guys. It's all good. Just breathe. Right. So, luck for the for this one project. Uh, first, we did you know a uh, two hundred year history of hurricanes. We're like, wow, I am never living there. <laughs> that, that one property has been wow. hit many wow. times and the river it, it's it was on the most transitory part of the river like this part of the river w- wiggled a lot and so we have maps because it was a commercial area for the entirety pretty much the entirety of the 19th century there are maps going you know this is my square foot no that's my square foot mm-hmm. right property uh, disputes yeah. well I- the good thing is, at least learning where not to live for future reference. And on that note, um, we're at the end of our second segment. And when we come back, we'll definitely discuss more about disaster recovery and perhaps even more about maps, because maps are great. Woo, maps! <laughs> Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. On this episode, we have the wonderful Deidre Black telling us about what you do with archaeology and disaster situations. And uh, one topic that's come up over the breaks are what do you do with historic cemeteries? Um, We've seen in some disaster situations like with Hurricane Katrina and whatnot that cemeteries would get waterlogged and 
the coffins would float away and uh just figured we'd talk a little bit about that and your experience with it and what do you do mm-hmm. take it away Deidre Alrighty. so yes historic cemeteries uh they tend to come into the federal nexus in two ways one is they've become waterlogged and the cemetery infrastructure has been damaged, fallen over, or the coffins or other containers have translocated up out of their original position and may be on the surface or may have floated away. Uh, this has happened, uh, it happened with Katrina and it's happened with um, just El Nino floods mm-hmm. along the Sabine River. Uh, Luckily, nothing floated away with Hurricane Harvey. Some things were translocated, but not enough to to float away. Um, but it's certainly an issue. And it's actually one of the simpler ones, just because there are a lot of state laws, mostly in the health and safety section of, of the laws, about human remains. Mm-hmm. Because of like embalming and whatnot, just correct, and just squishy bits, squishy bits of humans uh, are are mm-hmm. regulated under health services, and it really has to be you know has someone found remains? Um, they call in the state health and human services or who else has been designated for recovery. Um, Not necessarily debris uh, when you're not sure who to send in and something may be hazardous again, because of say embalming Mm -hmm. or embalming fluid or even just uh, human things. Uh, Services can be hired in by the state or the County that specialize in hazardous material cleanup uh, and they can recover those items but typically you'll have uh, state or even federal laws that will go okay well if we can identify the remains and find out where they started out from then you can figure out what to do uh, for Mm -hmm. remains that are of a certain age you know say less than 50 years uh, you do a good faith effort to try and identify next to kin and tell them what happened to the remains of their kin Mm -hmm. and make sure that they know that they're being relocated. Um, Where do remains usually go if once they're found, is it usually just like to a county coroner? If they're not found in the cemetery where they originated, Mm -hmm. then yes, you'll go to a, a coroner or morgue or an area that's been designated for human remains, because unfortunately that is one of the items that happens with disasters is humans do pass away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort those things out. So sometimes you'll also have, you know, a designated mass casualty location to try and get things sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the emphasis is always on dignity and you know trying to preserve as much of the remains as possible identify the next of kin Mm -hmm. well and i know in the u.s um i think it's called dmort for disaster mortuary operational response team Mm -hmm. um that's broken up into different regions and you know osteologists forensic anthropologists um dentists can sign up um, to eventually essentially be on call Mm -hmm. in a disaster and you have um, training in some very clear organizational and hierarchical structures that when you show up someplace where there's been a disaster you can create essentially a a field morgue so that you can um, identify people so that you can you know, contact kin, everything's handled very respectfully. Um, it's usually 
or at least in the training that I did for it, um, they talked about being it being very um, like interdepartmental. Um, you know, so you right. have these volunteers who might come from several different states. Some of them might be academics. Some of them might be field archaeologists. Others might be, um, you know, morticians and, you know, but it's, it's state and local and, and federal police. And it can be anything from like a, a fire to a flood to, you know, there was a, a 12 car backup and there were a lot of fatalities and it was in a small town and that town just doesn't have the facilities to deal with mm-hmm. that number of deceased mm-hmm. individuals, unfortunately. Are dental records usually the main form of identification for these types of situations for both um, historic well, I guess I don't know how far back dental records go, I guess. Um, like, what are the best forms of identification? Uh, dental records are super useful. DNA is really useful as well. Um, if you are potentially dealing with someone who might have um, an implant, whether that is a hip or a knee replacement or boob augmentations, those will have serial numbers that you can, there's a database that you can track down. Um, Photographs can be used as well if the, if the bodies are clothed. Um, So like if an airplane hits the ground, if they have footage of everyone boarding the plane, you can use what people are wearing to identify different parts. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know that you also sometimes have issues kind of because of shows like, um, you know, CSI and NCIS, people, people know about genetic testing and obviously you want it to get as much of your loved one back as possible, mm-hmm. but there is kind of a size below which they don't test because you're not going to get good DNA out of it. Um, so they're, okay. they're usually, um, if it, if it's traumatic and, and bits are strewn about, um, sorry, there isn't a nicer way to say that. Um, no, it makes sense. I mean, there especially a, with things like nine eleven. And yeah, um, there there is a size of squishy human bit that you know you you don't test and is not going to be identified. What about historic bone? Um, so when you're getting into historic burials and both, um, I just don't really have any experience with this myself. So let's say you come upon um, a historic cemetery and um, you may have. Um, bones or historic remains that have come from that cemetery, or you're pretty sure, how does that identification process usually work in a disaster situation? Like, are you able to rebury them? Are you able to actually identify which grave that would have come from? Um, so, again, the, the the federal response for recovery is mostly funding. It, it's towards funding those efforts mm-hmm. and just making sure that the laws are being followed uh, in a historic mm-hmm. cemetery uh, you will first check to see if there are cemetery records of you know who was where and when uh, because if you've just had simple translocations so uh, remains or grave goods coming to the surface you have a good idea of who is recorded of being interred in that area or uh, another example I've come across are very large trees fall Mm -hmm. over and their roots are entangled in remains Hmm. is that because the coffin has disintegrated and the and the roots are then wrapped around the remains themselves it could be that or the person could have been interred in a shroud oh okay um you you have to remember that coffins are are socioeconomic Mm -hmm. item about you know what if they even exist and if so what are they what are they made of made of you know that makes sense and so we we do our best with records and then after that it's a you know you you get your map and depending on the state you're in uh, things can simply be reinterred within the same cemetery after a best faith effort has been done to notify next of kin to make sure that they're fine with that. Um, That is the most common 
way is if you know where they are, the, the remains are reinterred. If mm -hmm. they came from a cemetery, they can go back to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's going to really vary based on state law. So I am curious. I lived in New okay. Orleans for a while, but um, okay. I didn't move there and I, I didn't you know start my archaeological training until after Katrina. But I, I do remember in a in a class that I took at university um, that the the professor was talking about one of the issues with Katrina was that bodies floated out of their grave sites and and New Orleans it's all above ground cemeteries and Not all they're of all it. there are a lot of cemeteries in the city yes. so there there were issues where they were finding kind of embalmed bodies in in houses and they couldn't they had a hard time finding them um you know they didn't couldn't necessarily identify them and determine what cemetery they they should be return to um i know there were you know we talked about contaminants in in the first episode there were also issues with contamination where there were houses that had like tfw spray painted on the side of them which stands for toxic floodwaters um mm -hmm. and basically meant that you know the house had to be demolished it was no longer safe to live in um mm -hmm. and there were also like numbers and circles and if you know what you were looking at some of that was like the number of bodies they found in the house and it's all very grim yes uh, but like, what would you do in that kind of situation where you can't identify? So again, that's going to uh, depend on the state of the remains when found in your state laws or state territorial tribal laws uh, around that area. Um, mm -hmm. In some cases, uh, badly deteriorated remains are recorded and then and then turned to ashes and mm -hmm. kept in storage because that is a stable way to store remains. Mm -hmm. um, if you even find human remains, say out in the desert and it's a recent thing, uh, as many measurements and uh, genetic markers as possible are taken. And then typically within a certain time frame, if they're not able to be identified, they'll be cremated. Uh, Cremated, thank you. Uh, they'll be cremated and, and stored simply because the storage needs for cremated remains are much easier and much cheaper than for whole remains. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I do know for a lot of disasters, large uh, freezer trucks are brought in to prolong the time or identification and and stuff like that but again that's going to really depend on your your state and local laws the state of the remains and the funds available and again historic preservation compliance barely touches on that on the federal nexus that that's really mostly covered by your health health and human services laws and, and agencies but hmm. it's certainly something people are more and more interested in particularly right. with the the recent news story about the remains from the move bombing that yes. made their way onto mm -hmm. a Coursera course um obviously those were not you know archaeological remains right. um but still but but just kind of how how that happened, um, how the remains ended up there, why the families weren't um, uh, conferred with, um, you know, it's a, pardon my language, but uh, clusterfuck, that should not have happened. Yeah. Minimally, in and, a nutshell. Yeah. And sometimes human remains pop up where unexpected. Uh, yes. Uh, years into the recovery. Uh, so a lot of people will see, you know, here's the disaster. Okay, we, we, we wiped the streets. And then a lot of the public, is, unless they were personally affected by the disaster, as far as they're aware, that's the entire recovery. But disaster continues on for years and even decades. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, depending on the severity of the damage, um, you still, to this day after Katrina, 
have schools being rebuilt uh, under the federal nexus. Um, I have seen examples where, so a school is like, okay, we're in a floodplain. We're always going to be in a floodplain. We're going to move up the street. Okay. And just so that we're out of the floodplain going forward because of sea level rise and our entire coast is 30 feet above sea level now, we're going to dig a big hole and put that dirt where the school's going to go. And so we have a hole for water to go into and the school's on top of some dirt. And we've just bought all this property from uh, a timber plantation. Mm -hmm. Right? It's been plowed. It's been pine trees with their giant tap roots have been pulled up. Yeah, we're all good. And then, so we're like, okay, you know, let's look at this and make sure it's compliant. You know, we have no endangered species. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, buildings here that are, you know, more than 50 years of age or, or are less than 50 years of age and super important. And we're like, what's that weird dot on oh, the no. map? Oh, no. No weird dots. <laughs> so anyone that's done a lot of planning for field work, if you have an entire area that's been clear cut except for one weird dot, <laughs> there's something there. Yeah. Could be a building, could be a cemetery, could be a barn, could be a well. It could be a tomb from the 1830s <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> great um well so first of all it's good that we have the historic preservation here so um we're making sure that they're staying in compliance but also we're like hey there may be human remains on this property because yeah. everybody wants a haunted school <laughs> obvious so where I, where I currently live there's a lot of schools that are next to old rancherias that all have their little tiny little family cemeteries. And mm -hmm. the kids are like, woo. <laughs> kids have, they'll always find a way to make it fun. Spooky. And they're like, we're going to go talk to the guy in the corner. Oh, okay. See ya after recess. Yeah. Um, your, your little... Uh, girls will invent entire rituals on the playground around the, the Rancheria Cemetery. <laughs> um, it sounds like you have but, some experience with this, DJ. <laughs> I've also, uh, you know, dabbled, uh, worked in childcare, and it's fascinating. The things that mm -hmm. continue through the generations yeah. <laughs> on, on how uh, genders work together oh yes and find interesting things yes um, on a very different note we are coming right. close to the end of the segment and Dieter do you have any closing thoughts just about your work in disaster recovery in terms of um archaeology's role in it and its importance so you know it is important for archaeology you never know what you're going to dig up like mm -hmm tomb from the 1830s where the school's going to go. <laughs> uh, um, I've had uh, the opportunity to recommend uh, archaeological sites and buildings for listing on the National Register that may not have been you know, even looked at if it hadn't been for that particular federal nexus. Mm -hmm. And I've also had the fun item of I've done so much work along the U.S. Gulf Coast before starting doing disaster recovery. I'm really familiar with some of the history of the area. And in one item, we had a dam that needed to be repaired. And we were consulting with the state historic preservation officer of, you know, will this uh, negatively, adversely affect, you know, any historic properties? Are there any historic properties archaeological sites nearby and I was like guys I'm gonna write this one they're like why I'm like my thesis site is like right there <laughs> and this dam is a property it's a contributing element to another property it's sitting on top of a different archaeological site that's eligible and there's like three sites next to it <laughs> so it might be a little important Just so like this it. is a complex letter oh and also <laughs> there's four endangered species that live 
in the dam, two that live upstream and one that lives downstream. And the one that lives downstream is only found right there. Oh, oh no! So, so guess like what? We're also things. going to write to so U.S. Fish and Wildlife <laughs> and the Army Corps of Engineers, and oh joy! <laughs> so you never know when you're sitting at the desk and going, "I dug a hole right there." Let me tell you about it. <laughs> and it and it certainly helps uh, folks in recovery that may not have a voice, mm-hmm. um, especially underrepresented socioeconomic groups. Mm-hmm. that yeah. we get to highlight their voice we have found buildings that you know we got to do their history and found they were the first freedman school oh wow like this weird little building is now the first freedman school in that county so we're giving that voice and that always feels good or we're looking that's at awesome. an area and we're just like that's it's weird dirt that's <laughs> you know contributing to the overall you know every little bit is contributing to the overall you know, world of what we know for the archaeology and history of the area. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. all this great information about your work, how it works, the things you found. We really appreciate you ha- coming on today and hope you will be back on again soon. Yes. As, as long as the disasters let me. <laughs> <laughs> well, to our Thanks, listeners... Everybody. Oh, <laughs> to our listeners, thank you for listening. Um, you can find us on our website, Women in Archaeology. Uh, you can email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com if you have any ideas for other episodes. If you'd like to come on, definitely email us. You can find us at Women Archies on Twitter and definitely contact us there as well. Um, check out our Patreon, check out our blog. We have all the things. Thank you so much for listening and take care. Bye. 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 Bye.